You are listening to Normalized Crime, an in-depth look at gang life and all the effects that come along with it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Normalized Crime. I'm Eric. What's going on? I'm Berto. And we're back with another episode, and I'm going to kind of kick off giving a little synopsis of what this episode is about. We're going to talk about a court ruling, which is known as Miller versus Alabama, which contests that basically was found that, what is it, a minor could not be convicted for of a life sentence. Right. So it's like, uh, I, it's it's unconstitutional. This is the correct verbiage, I guess. It's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to mandatory life without parole. And, and I just did, first I want to put out to everybody listening to this that we are no by by no means legal scholars, so we could have this completely wrong. But from what I read about this, this ruling was based on two amendments in the Constitution, which is the 14th Amendment and the 8th Amendment. And Mm -hmm. I have up in front of me the 14th and the 8th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment is, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And The Eighth Amendment is excessive bail should not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So the beauty of anything that's written by the government is as vague as it could possibly be. So (laughs) these things don't tell you very much. But but Berto, go and explain a little bit on why (laughs) you think this is an important thing to talk about. Okay, yeah. Uh, first, just to piggyback off of what you said about the law in itself and how vague it is. Um, and I think as I go into the, the topic, I think everybody will be able to see how gray and, and uh, muddy, I guess, the waters are when it comes to decision making and how not all people are treated the same. And, you know, in some sense, that's that's right. And that makes sense because you know, I have my own opinions and I don't believe that, you know, I don't believe that some child molester should be given four year sentence and, and be back in the community. That's just my opinion, though. Um, and so I, I believe there's a <clears throat> I believe that individualizing, quote unquote, criminals is important and crimes is even more important. And I believe that, um, you know, that's that's kind of that's kind of where I guess a lot of people's opinions are going to fall. So this one is a is a close subject for me because, well, number one, I was a juvenile for the crimes that I committed. So had I been given a life sentence, this law would have probably been my only lifeline. You know, had I not cooperated and given and I've been given a life sentence, this law probably would have been my only lifeline to ever having a shot at getting out. <clears throat> and my brother was in the same category. My friend, too. And um, even at this point, my my half brother, um, David, who has been in prison for about 32 years. Uh, so this law was like really, really key in in um, almost in almost entirely in the core group of people that I associated with that I always talk about, that I always tell stories about. Fortunately for us, you know, when we decided to cooperate, um, that benefited obviously how our cases turned out, right? But had we not decided to cooperate, this would have been basically the only lifeline we had. You know, I kind of want to just throw it out there like 
to maybe get some opinions and maybe, you know, obviously Eric's going to chime in on what he thinks about it because it's hard for me to see things from a different perspective when I was actually in the middle of it. And obviously I'm going to be, you know, a little bit biased to how I feel about how things turn out. But uh, so we'll start with my brother, my my full blood brother. Right. Um, <clears throat> he was one of the he was the he was the first and only one um, to to go the route to try to uh, basically petition the court and see if he qualified for this new law came out in 2012. You know, when it came out, it seemed very, once again, vague. But at the same time, it also seemed pretty clear in the sense that it says that you cannot sentence a juvenile to life, to mandatory life without parole, <clears throat> keyword being mandatory. And, and what that, what that meant for like my brother, you know, cause I wasn't sent to sentenced to life out the gate. What it meant for my brother and, and also to it is that they both had mandatory life sentences in their minds. Um, they were both charged with intentional murder, uh, first degree intentional murder, which in the, in the, you know, in the federal system, under the federal sentencing guidelines, murder one carries a mandatory life sentence if death is not imposed. And that's, you know, Federal Bureau of Prisons, that's all across the country. So where it got muddied is that because we were on a gang indictment, organized crime, we were charged with the RICO Act, which is for anybody who's not <clears throat> heard of it, it's racketeering influence, corrupt organization. It was a law that was designed for the mafia style takedowns where they couldn't really reach the, the top of the hierarchy. And they started basically um, using it as a tool to bring down larger street gangs, obviously nationwide street gangs and, and um, the Latin Kings fell into that category. So because we were charged with Rico, I don't know how, but somehow that lessens the offense of first degree murder and it makes it made my brother and Toot's sentence not mandatory. It made it a discretionary sentence. There was like some, in at Toot sentencing, because Toot was sentenced first, there was like a little bit more, I guess, in favor for the government when it came to this argument, because initially Toot was offered <clears throat> what's called the 5K1 letter, which is basically a letter of cooperation. And in that letter, um, the government asked for that the mandatory sentence not be imposed, which seems odd because if if life isn't a mandatory sentence, then why would that need to be said? But anyways, they asked for a mandatory life sentence to not be imposed, but they had no recommendation. Well, due to the outcrying and, you know, rightfully so, you know, victim's family, the judge didn't deem it was appropriate to give him any cooperation. And he denied the 5K1 letter and still gave him life. Now, the reason why that's important is because the fact that he was given a 5K1 letter and then denied it, that automatically goes to show that the judge 100% imposed his, his own discretion, right? That, like, that shows, okay, this is his discretion. Now, in my brother's case, when he went to get sentenced, because of what happened to Toot, the government told my brother and my brother's lawyer and said, hey, listen, we're not even going to offer you any substantial assistance out the, you know, right out the gate. What we're going to do is we'll, we'll sentence you and then down the line, we'll bring you back for a downward departure, which is like a rule 35B. And anybody who knows anything about the federal system, all these terms make sense. Basically, what they were saying is we're not going to send you to anything less than life in front of the victim's family. 
And down the line, when you got time in, we'll ask for a reduction. Then if the victim's family wants to protest, then they can. And so they never offered my brother any cooperation right, right out the gate. And so my brother went in there and he got life. Now, the judge's argument was that even though there was no 5K1 letter, his argument was that my brother's sentence was not a mandated sentence. Life was not to be imposed because he had the discretion to do otherwise, being that this was a RICO case and not specifically a first degree, first degree intentional murder case. And so when that court, that case got to the courts, to the higher courts, unfortunately, they agreed with him. They agreed with the judge. I guess my, my, you know, obviously I have a lot of issues with that. One being that it was my brother, right? But I'm saying just in general for kids that have committed crimes, because, you know, we're not talking about mass murderers. We're not talking about serial killers. We're not talking about people that kill their whole families or all these other uh, different extenuated circumstances where I guess a juvenile really, really needs to be punished and looked at for what they've done psychologically. Maybe they need to be evaluated. We're talking about a crime and crimes, to be fair, that happen um, as, a, as, as being a member of a street gang and as, as living this, this lifestyle. And so I don't, I don't want to call it a one-off because obviously there was a pattern of racketeering, but it wasn't a situation where I felt like, and I still feel like, it deemed a life sentence for somebody who was 16 or 17 when they made a decision. My brother, my half brother was 15. Um, and, and he's, like I said, 32 years. That's, that's a long time for any crime. And so <clears throat> I think, I think right there, uh, let me ask you this, Eric, being that I laid out kind of everything with my brother's situation and how that played out. Do you think that there should, that that life sentence was warranted? And do you think that it's quote unquote fair to, um, I guess, to kind of make that law fit in with how they wanted it to fit in in order to deny my brother of the affidavit that he filed? So based on what I've heard, and I just want to put it out there that this is a, I, I work a lot better when I like read things and like, for me to really be able to answer this, I would want to read the specific law, which I don't see a specific law in here of what I'm looking for. But that said, like, okay, so your brother gets a life sentence and I'm assuming the life sentence comes from the murder, not from this racketeering. Correct. So what I would say is unless they can put your brother in jail for life because of racketeering, I don't see how they can say, well, because what I, what based on what I'm getting from you, it sounds like what they basically said was your brother is going to life for prison, going to life for this murder. And it's okay for him to go to life, go to prison for life because it was a racketeering murder. Is that kind of the argument that is being made? Well, no, their argument is based on the judge's discretion and the judge's discretion only. There, the, 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 the fact that racketeering is involved actually lessened the magnitude of what a mandated sentence would carry for first-degree intentional murder. So if my brother would have been just indicted on first degree intentional murder, say by itself, it's a mandatory life sentence if he loses that trial or even if he takes a plea, unless the government files a motion to to 
to go below that. So the, the, the biggest distinction here is the judge's discretion. So the judge is basically saying, listen, I don't care what circumstances are going on. To me, this, these crimes and this lifestyle was so egregious, I'm giving you life. So where the, where the, the, the disconnect is, is when it gets to a high court, you know, my brother's saying, hey, well, listen, the law just says that you can't give a juvenile life without parole. That's what I'm reading in this law. And um, it's plain as day. And then the high court is, is saying, well, yeah, that's what we're saying. You can't give a juvenile a mandatory life without parole sentence. But your sentence was a mandatory. Your sentence was discretionary because the judge could have gave you whatever he wanted to because under RICO, you don't have a mandatory life sentence coming. So you see how gray area it is? It's so, it's so like, because they charged him the way they did, it's not a mandated life sentence. But any other way they would have charged him, it would have man- been a mandated life sentence. So it's like, where's the, <laughs> I mean, where's the justice in that? So, so what I would say from, the, from hearing that explanation, how I would say it is, is that they're finding a loophole, which mm-hmm. they're using to be able to not give, not follow this law, which to me, to me, that's completely wrong. Like, if right. you are going to put a law on the books that says, "Hey, if you create a, commit a crime when you're under the, when you're a minor, you cannot get a life t- sentence for that." There shouldn't be any loopholes for that. Unfortunately, that's not the way our legal system works at all. Right. But right. but yeah, I would agree with you that that I don't see how you go from how you can say, "Well, it's different because there's racketeering attached to it." And, and, but at the same time, if when they wrote this law, they put something in there that specifically stated that, you know, if the murder is a, you know, they might've put something specifically in there. If it's a murder racketeering, then it's not a mandated, you know, if that's clearly defined in this law, then I don't, I mean, whether I agree with it or not. Right. The law is fortunate. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's the way the law is written. And unfortunately, but. Right. No, no. And, and here's the, here's the, the, another caveat, right. That I know for sure, because you got to remember I was with my brother when this law first came down. So I remember when he started to research it and get ready to petition the court for it, there was another, there's another part of the, the law that, and this is what, this is what, what blows my mind about how the government's approach was in this case also is that there's a part in the law that says, you cannot give a, a juvenile a mandatory life sentence without parole unless, and the unless part is that the crime is so egregious or that the juvenile is basically unfixable, you know, psychologically or, you know, uh, however they deem it. Now, that tells me two things. It tells me one, that they were thinking, right? Because that's true. There are cases where I do believe, man, some some people or kids are just born with or raised, you know, and they have something missing there and, and you know, psychologically they can never recover and they do things that are, you know, yeah, egregious and, and, and um, unforgivable, so to speak. But the second thing it tells me is that they didn't deem my brother's case that egregious. So because if they would have just went to court and said, 
well, we didn't, we deem this case too egregious. There's no need to discuss it anymore because then now the only thing they could have a hearing on is to prove, you know, that the case was egregious. And, you know, listen, it was a heinous crime. I'm, I'm not here defending the actions of the crime. I'm not here trying to, I guess, develop sympathy for my brother and two. I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not, my, my point is I'm, I'm trying to get some understanding about, you know, is this, is this the right way that things are really going? Um, but that wasn't the route they, that they went. They went to the, the other route, which is, oh, the judge had discretion to do what he wanted to do. So obviously they didn't feel like my brother's crime was that egregious. And I didn't, you know, not, you know, from, from any, from any victim, you know, in the world, it's always going to be an egregious crime. So I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize to anybody out there that's been hurt by violence, gang violence. I'm not trying to minimize what you went to and said, oh, your crime wasn't egregious. I'm just saying in comparison to what I'm guessing the high courts deem egregious, my brothers fell on a lower level spur of the moment kind of crime. You know, it wasn't a premeditated planned out murder, you know, as a 15, 16 year old that went and killed half his family or something, you know? And, 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 uh, so I don't know, I guess, I guess when I look at that, I, I try to decipher then who are they really trying to help? Because I feel like if they have so much wiggle room with these, these laws that they try to uh, come up with to quote unquote help juveniles have a chance at life and, and turn their life around, who really are you helping? I mean, are you helping 20 people in the country, you know, 20, 30 people in the country that are juveniles that were sentenced to life without parole? Because my, my brother and two were maybe two of 10 juveniles in the entire United States in the federal system. There were two of 10 probably that were charged and given life um, for crimes as a juvenile that were in the federal system. So there wasn't a lot. It's not like they had a lot to choose from. Why wouldn't their case be a poster child for what this law really represents? I mean, I guess it's, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I've been thinking about. Yeah. And, and I, to- I totally get that, but at the, I, f- I feel like based on what you've said, it it almost sounds to me like what they're doing is they're looking at this and being like, well, okay, yeah, this law came down, but we're, we're not going to let you out of jail because of this law, you know, and they just found a loophole. They found a way to keep your brother in jail. And, right. and personally, I, I don't think it's right. And like, like you said, even if they were to say, okay, well, the crime was too heinous. Well, I feel like if you're going to call a crime too heinous, there has to be a measurement on what makes it a heinous crime. And it right. should not be a judge deciding what's a heinous crime. There should be a literal system that says that way every every murder is measured equally. You know, Because right. if you have a different judge <clears throat> choosing what a heinous crime is on in every trial the levels of heinous crime are going to be all over the place because right. every judge is going to choose differently. So as far, as far as like discretion, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, and I would love to have like a lawyer that could explain to me why discretion needs to be there, because I'm sure that, that people will have an argument for this on why this has to exist. But to me, a law is written and you have to decipher the law by the way it's written. (laughs) 
And right. there can't be, there shouldn't be discretion. If the law doesn't say it, then the judge shouldn't be able to say, well, you know, but then again, at the same time, I just read those amendments and how vague they are. Right. You know, it, it's just like a terrible, like, I, I think our legal system just is set up yeah. very poorly, you know? Yeah. Cause the foundation, the foundation of the, um, the foundation of the, the law was really cruel and unusual punishment. Like that's what they always bring up, even though it's the 14th amendment. And then there's some other stuff in the eighth amendment. The, the core principle of the eighth amendment is cruel and unusual punishment, which is what they're um, referring to when they change this for juveniles. So I guess, I mean, I guess I can kind of segue into um, maybe a, a different kind of discussion that is, is really important for me to get some perspective on, but I can also give my opinion on it. And that's, when it comes to juveniles, exactly where we're, you know, obviously we can't get everybody's opinion, but kind of where people are, where you think society is, as far as second chances and, and um, more importantly, what to think <clears throat> of juveniles that commit serious crimes. Um, because, you know, I, I don't know they you know, statistically they say, uh, you know, like a man's brain isn't fully developed until he's like 20, what, 23? Or something like that, um, and so I guess I'm I'm curious to know because I'm a victim of this myself. You know, even though I thought I grew up fast and I put myself in grown up positions, and then I was in you know doing a lot of grown up things, that doesn't necessarily mean that I had the mentality to really do it, to problem solve, to risk evaluate. You know, those I, I don't believe I was fully developed in that sense. You know, I don't know if this is a great example, but I know when I was a kid, I was a damn daredevil and I would roof hop when we were playing tag, you know, from garage to garage. And now I'm terrified of heights. Is that because I'm <laughs> is that because I'm older now and I'm smarter or, you know, so that's what I'm saying. Like, where where is it? Where is the uh, where are the psychologists on this? You know, where do you think it is, man? How do you feel about juveniles who commit crimes and and. And their ability to to be better. Well, and so for this, I'm going to wide widen this up to beyond just juveniles, because because I think I personally believe that our our prison system should be about reforming. It it, right. it should exist to reform people. Like now, I'm not going to say that there aren't people out there in the world that can't be reformed, because I thoroughly believe there are people that cannot be reformed. And, but I do also believe that a lot of people that end up out of prison and then end up back in prison is not because of their fault. It's because the prison system failed them in reforming them. So I guess how I would explain it is, is that it's across the board. I don't, I don't know if I really, I mean, yes, I guess pr life prison sentences should exist, but I mean, your brother was charged with one murder, correct? Yes. So I, I don't ever believe there's a situation where one murder is enough to give somebody a life prison sentence because you're basically saying that because you committed this one murder, we don't believe you can be reformed. And that doesn't make sense to me because the foundation of a prison system should be to reform people. So you should be putting them into prison to reform them. Mm. And by stating that you committed one murder, and we're saying you can't be reformed. You're you're saying, well, we're not even going to try with you. 
which I think goes against everything the prison system should stand for, personally. <clears throat> On the flip side, if we look at society as a whole, though, that's going to be a very divided thing. You know, mm-hmm. there's going to be a person that's going to say the minute you shoot somebody, you should go to jail for the rest of your life, you know, mm-hmm. and because that person's going to look at you and say, you made a mistake, but that's a mistake I would never make. So there must be something wrong with you, which right. I don't agree with, but there are people that feel that way. Yeah, I, I definitely don't agree with that because, I mean, you know, just just an example well, the easiest if, example to use, Berto, is you. <laughs> like, like, no, clearly, for sure, for sure. Anybody that listens to this podcast can tell that you're not a cold blooded killer. You made it. Oh, yeah, for sure. You for know. sure. I, I guess I was thinking in my head, I was, you know, referring more to those people who have that hard stance where yeah, that well, if you pick okay. up a gun, you know, just, I'm just trying to, I was trying to collect my thoughts, just thinking about, um, because I, you know, there are people like that and they have the right to feel how they feel. I guess the, my only argument is that is if that same person was put in a situation where they had to save their life and they shot somebody, would they feel different? Oh, um, and they most certainly would. Right. And, and, I mean, and, and I'm not by any means trying to compare my situation saying I, that I committed self-defense or, or my brother or anything like that. I'm just saying in general, I believe that to individualize crimes to individualize people is the key to reform because, um, and I think I mentioned this about the first step act. I felt like they got that part right. And they individualize, they're supposed to be individualizing their approach when it comes to inmates to reduce recidivism. And I think that's the right way to go, man, but you, they just have the consistency is going to be the most important part because, you know, staying consistent with a guy that's in prison for 15 years, is going to be harder than staying consistent with a guy who's got three years, you know? So it's the ones that are the long-term guys that is, is where the reform is, is really important. I think with the short-term guys, you know, they have nine times out of 10, not committed as serious of an infraction. And so they mentally, they, they're not dealing with the same kind of overhaul, I guess is a good word when it comes to changing. I mean, look, I would talk about me all the time. Like it's a complete overhaul from everything I've ever been in my life. And that takes time. That takes effort. And yeah. So, um, yeah, man, I, I, I think this one right here is, is like, it's always a touchy subject for me because I, I do. I mean, I definitely appreciate the approach you taking about criminals in general and the, and the, the ability to have a second chance. Um, and I respect that. Obviously, I'm a I'm of a like mind, but I also think it's even more pinpoint important when when you really specify juveniles, man. Because um, I know I would have never made these decisions that I've made as an adult. I just wouldn't have. Um, risk tolerance. You you start to develop different kinds of parts of your brain that you know, and, and so you you make better decisions. So I, I think it's really important, man. And and like with my half brother. So my half brother, his situation's a little different. It's it's kind of unique. So he he uh he caught his murder in '91, I believe it is. I, I I couldn't tell you exactly the details of what happened. I know that he was 15. He was a gang member. He had a gun. All the stereotypes you can think of. <clears throat> um, he was drunk, and he was going home. And he lived on the north side. And something happened. He had an altercation with somebody. And obviously. 
like this isn't an excuse neither. I, I think about it, but I, I use it a lot for myself. But you're not the biggest person at 15. <laughs> you're not. You're not a. You're not a UFC fighter at 15. And yeah, I got into a lot of fights, but you know, if a grown man would have got their hands on me and and he knew what he was doing, he probably could have hurt me, right? So I mean, at 15 to carry a gun is probably, and you're living this kind of lifestyle, it's it's probably common. So mm-hmm. he gets into this altercation with this man, and uh, he ends up shooting. I don't know. I, I'm I'm almost certain it wasn't like a point blank kind of killing where he was like right on him. I believe he shot from like across the street or something. Once again, that doesn't make it better, but it changes the way you think about his motive. And so, yeah, he shot him. The guy ended up dying. He was a juvenile. So they waved him to adult court and he got life with the possibility of parole. So that's what makes my half brother a little different, David. He didn't get without parole. So yeah, what what uh, what ended up hurting him the most in my opinion is that this guy was a prestigious guy he was a he was a teacher i believe at marquette you know and and all the marquette alum are obviously going to uh support you know a person that they lost and they cared about and they loved and and so they rallied around the guy really really hard it influenced the way they treated my half brother i believe my brother you know I, i love him like a brother and so you know, they, I believe it influenced the way they sentenced him. And, and then fast forward some years later, um, they actually used him to cooperate. They used my brother to cooperate, uh, David. And so the, the offer was, hey, well, listen, um, it's different in the state and the feds. In the state, they can only offer what they call a sentence modification, where ultimately it's up to the judge's discretion again. Um, in the feds, it's a little different. Yeah, it's ultimately up to the judge, but in the feds, cooperation is kind of the name of the game. So when you get a motion from the government to get cooperation, nine times out of 10, they're going to give it to you. In the rare instance that they don't, like with two, they'll give it to you at a different time. But anyways, so it's harder to get time off in the state, which is my point of saying that. And so when he went back to get a sentence modification after he cooperated for the government um, on the first indictment in 98 or whatever it was. Basically, what they gave him was nothing. They told him, no, we're not giving you any time off. You're kind of, you are where you are because of what you did. And obviously that played, uh, what played a big role was all the Marquette alums showing up again and, and obviously vetoing this decision to try to get <clears throat> David any time off. And so that hurt his case. Fast forward again, you know, years and years later, they used him as a character witness on our indictment for the grand jury, which is basically like to give uh, quote unquote expert testimony about the Latin Kings and the hierarchy and structure and how it breaks down and <clears throat> all the moving parts. And they used him for that and said, okay, well, listen, we'll get you back in court again. And this time it should go a little differently. So, you know, once again, he's happy, you know, he's, he's helped him out again. And now he's kind of like, all right, cool. Like it's finally my time. You know, it had been 20 some years. I remember I was with him. I was with him when he went back. Uh, to court. And he came back and he said, man, all that, because his original sentence was life with the possibility of parole. And then he had a 10 year consecutive sentence for something. I don't know if it was a part of the, they charged him with uh, something as a part of the murder. I, I, I don't know. It was like an aggravating factor. And so what happened when he went back to court, they kept him with the life with the possibility of parole, but they just removed the consecutive 10 year sentence. So essentially it did nothing. It did nothing for him. Um, and so, you know, once again, all the people showed up, 
Everybody was there for him to keep him in, not there for him to support him. Yeah. To keep him in. <laughs> and so, so that was that. So now fast forward again. Now the state of Wisconsin, I don't want to say they had gotten a little more relaxed, but they had started to consider more cases of people who committed crimes as juveniles and were petitioning the court to gain favor. And, you know, I mean, obviously these guys are guys that had been in for over 20, 25 years and a couple guys got out. And so David had his hopes really high, rightfully so, because he was basically being told he's going to be put back on the docket. Actually, one of his close friends that he knew, an older Latin king, he ended up getting out. So he was excited. And once again, you know, time came and he was getting ready to go. And then he got a call and he said, well, listen, the judge you have overseeing your case now is a little bit of a stickler on these kinds of things. We think you should let her retire, right? Like this is what his lawyer's telling him. So he's like, okay, that sounds cool. She, she was supposed to retire in a couple months, which was in July. So then she retires. So now it's time to start getting everything back together, getting everybody back together and getting everybody back on board for, for this hearing. And then all of a sudden now all the people that were in agreement to getting him back in court, including the district attorney, they pull out and they pull out for reasons unknown. You know, they didn't state any reason, you know, some of some, obviously they're never going to tell him directly, but the whispers are it's political. Oh, you know, the, the, the governor is, is rerunning. So we're kind of, you know, he don't want to have no major almost because the governor has to approve all those sentence modifications. You start to do the math and you're like, okay, well, you know, how many, you know, how many ads are you going to see on TV where it says this governor let out two murderers, you know? So I'm guessing that's, that kind of slowed him up. And, and it's, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, man, because he even got like paperwork stating that they planned on taking him back and, and uh, adjusting his actual crime that he was charged for, which would have lowered his parole eligibility date. And ultimately that's what he said. He said, okay, don't let me out. Then just lower my eligibility date so that I can go and see the parole board faster. And if that happens, there's no reason why they shouldn't let him out. He's been in over 30 years. He's, you know, he's staying out of trouble. And no, so that never happened. So now he's in li- he's in limbo. That's another thing, man. Like these 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 things and these happenings, they're never fast. You know, they develop over years, not not months. You know, never weeks. Um, these happenings are years and and yearly based almost. And so I feel, you know, terrible for him. You got a guy, I mean, he's talking about he's, he's been in 32 years. Like, you know, at what point for a crime you did when you're 15 that, I mean, from the outside looking in and even as a biased person, I would say it was an accident. To me, it didn't seem like it was a intentional murder. It seemed like an accident. I mean, if you do the, the math on the case, I don't know. I think that uh, there has to be, um, I a guess, an explanation. And, and yeah. a better way to do this. I mean, yes. because, I mean, you're talking broken promises and just, I mean, for, for God's sakes, the guy's been in jail for 32 years. You get you build up this whole thing that, hey, maybe something will happen now. And then right. only just to take it all away. I mean. Deflating. The, deflating. And it's just, it's really not fair at all. Yeah. Either. either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, imagine how that feels, right? Like you got 30 years in, right? 31 years, 32 years. And then you get a letter saying, hey, listen, we're bringing you back to court and you're basically going to go home. 
you know, that's that's then this is a letter from the U.S. government or from, you know, whomever parts were involved, probably the state of Wisconsin, because he's not he wasn't charged in the federal system. He was charged in the uh, in the state system. So probably the state of Wisconsin Department of Corrections is where he got his whatever information from. And then one day they just come and say, yeah, mm, we uh, we pulled the trigger too early on that one, man. We're going to have yeah. to uh, we're going to have to think about this for another. I mean, now, you know. It sounds almost terrible to say, but I guess for me, I look at it like it's okay to say because there's light in the fact that I believe his first parole eligibility date is 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 in 27. So yeah, that sucks because it's still you know four years away, five years away, but you know there's yeah. hope there. Yeah, at least there's hope. I just want to state state that 32 years and. Unless this, unless your brother, what is it, your half brother? He's my, yeah, he's my, but he's like my brother though. I mean, he's known me since I was a kid. I didn't know him, but go ahead. Uh, but the, but for this guy to have been in jail for thirty two years for a murder he committed when he was what sixteen years old, fifteen. I mean, fifteen years old. <clears throat> he better be a monster in prison. <laughs> yeah, because nah. because I mean, that would why would you leave somebody locked up for that long? Right or something like that, unless 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 our government just doesn't believe that criminals can be reformed. Which that's I, the key, right? Right, and and that's a tragedy because I mean, a lot of these instances. Again, there are always exceptions, but a lot of these instances are innocent mistakes or just bad judgment. You know, maybe yeah. maybe it wasn't necessarily a mistake, but. It's something you did as a younger person that in if you give that person five years, they will look back at that mistake and be like, I can't believe I did that. I'm a, you know, like, and right. there isn't a single person out there that's listening to this podcast, not listening to this podcast that didn't do something stupid when they were 16, you know, right. and right. whether you had, I mean, the difference between the stupid thing that I probably did that I did when I was 16 and that some of these people did with 16 I is I didn't have a gun in my hand, you know? Right. And thank God I didn't, but, yeah. but it, it's tragic that this happens to people, but it all comes back to like, what is the right answer? Because, yeah. you know, like now I'm going to flip this around on you and ask you this question, which is going to be the number one question people are, or reason people are going to say that, your brother should never get out of jail. And that's how do you respond to somebody that says, well, your brother killed my such and such family member. My family member never has a life again. Why should your brother have a life? Right. No. And that's a, that's a fair, that's a fair uh, question to ask. I guess my only answer, my only response that I could have for that is the same response that I use when people ask, you know, about cooperation and how do you feel about cooperation? And it's the same thing I've said a million times. Everybody is, you know, all these hardened criminals are against cooperation until it's somebody they love that needs to cooperate. And that's how I would look at this too. I would say, yeah, man, of course you hate a guy that killed somebody in your family, but what if it was your son that did it? What if it was your brother that it doesn't have to be a murderer. He doesn't have to shoot nobody. What if he accidentally was driving drunk and killed somebody. You know, that's a crime. That's a crime in itself. Does he deserve to never get out again in his life? 
you know, so I just, I just say from a compassion standpoint, only thing I could say is what if it's somebody that you love? Would you want them to have a chance? You would know if that person deserves a chance. And me, I know that my brothers deserve chances. You know, they're not monsters. Even to reiterate what you're saying about being a monster in prison, far from that, he chose to cooperate not once while he was in prison, but twice. So you want to talk about being an asset. I mean, you're talking about somebody who cooperated and potentially brought people off the street that were committing crimes, that were killing people, could possibly kill people in prison. That has to be valuable. And sure, everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, to save their own neck. Yeah, that's 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 right. But then why doesn't everybody do it then? Exactly. Because not everybody has the courage to do that kind of stuff. So, And he's still in prison. He's still around people that are very much could still be in this lifestyle. So he's putting himself at risk by cooperating. And, you know, it's just. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's I guess that's that's my main thing, man, is I, w- I always try to. I always try to be fair if I have a strong opinion about something. And I ask myself the question that you just asked me a lot, which is what would somebody else think? What, what, where do they poke holes at in my opinion? And the first place is always where you went, which is what if it's somebody that you love or what if it's somebody that you care about or what if it was my, you know, fill in the blank. And so I think that's the only way there will ever be consideration for people and change and reform. Otherwise, nobody's ever going to forgive anybody. And it's just, you know, a continuing spiral of going downhill into nothingness because um, that's really what this world is about, man. Yeah, there's a lot of there's there's bad seeds out there that they function better in prison. They're they're better. They're better members of of uh, a bureau of prisons than they are in the street. I agree with that. I do believe there are people like that. And like I said, I have my own opinions about what kind of criminals are the ones that psychologically can't recover because them are the ones that are really dangerous. You know, when you can't when you can't grasp what you're doing is wrong, then that's that's different. You know, th- those are those are the kind of people that I mean, and we know them all. I mean, we know Jeffrey Dahmer, we know John Wayne Gacy, we know you know, Ed Gein, we know it sucks because two out of three were in Wisconsin. Right. But anyway, <laughs> but, but yeah, so we, we know these people, you know, we know what they look like, um, you know? And so I, I guess that's, that's my thing, man, is I hate to, I hate to put them on the same scale, so to speak. Right. Like if John, if, if Jeffrey Dahmer deserves to do life in prison, you know, a guy that killed one person, you know, when he was 15 and he barely knew what he was doing, in my opinion, he deserves to do the same amount of time as Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, you know? and and I think I think when you frame it that way, most sensible people would be like, absolutely not. But unfortunately, that is the way that so much of this is framed, or is you know like yeah, somebody that does it once is is treated the same exact way as somebody that has done it multiple times, and and I think that a, a big part of the other thing that probably a lot of people don't realize is that the majority of people sitting in prisons today are not Jeffrey Dahmer. They're you, they're your brother, they're your half brother. I mean, they're people that made mistakes once in their life and are going to jail for it. And, and but unfortunately, (laughs) on the same flip side of it is, is that 
there is just limitations to what our legal system can do. Yeah. And, but if, from my perspective, if, if, if it's doing the best it can do right now, I don't agree with that at all because I think right. it's just broken left and right because right. it's just, it's just not set up right. But, but right. I, also, and, and, I can't, I can't give the solution to the, that problem either. So, right. That's, that, that's, uh, that's perfect because I was going to say, you know, conceptually, to be fair, it's not like the government can analyze an uh, individual and say, you're reformed now after this much time, or you're reformed now after this much time, you know, because if I'm being honest, right, and, and, and I'm being fair, if I would have did seven years, I'd probably get out and I'm still a gang member. But not, not, not time-wise, I'm saying if I was only facing a certain amount of time. You know, if I was only facing 10 years, I probably, I never, I never cooperate. I never change my life. I go do my time. I get out. I'm probably still back in the street. Now I'm not going to be out there carrying a gun. I'm not going to be out there doing the things that I was doing when I was 13 because I've developed now mentally. I understand the risk at, you know, the risk, the risk assessment mentally. I start to see psychologically, I start to change, but that takes age. It takes time. But to be fair, had I not did the time that I did and had, you know, my life put in front of me and been able to evaluate the decisions I was making, you know, maybe I wouldn't have changed. So for every criminal or every person who makes a mistake, there is their own threshold, man. And that's why, you know, what you said in the beginning is 100% on par with what needs to happen. And that's to actually, actually reform people. Now, is there, there's not some default setting for everybody, right? And, and that's why I said individualizing these kind of processes is the most important thing. And it, for really, it, it really, it really takes a criminal to be broke down mentally and broke down um, psychologically to start to see where the error in their way is. That happens for different people at different points in their, in the stages of their, of their sentence. Um, but for the most part, I noticed, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the true change is going to come from guys that were facing real time and they ended up doing real time anyways. So they still had time to work on themselves and then they got out, you know, and they had a good foundation to build from. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, that's the gift and the curse about these kind of conversations, man, is, is, you know, it's good to bring awareness, but there's never really one good answer. There is no one size fits all. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing. So you can look at it and say, well, the, the system is is broken the way it is set up now, but they could easily change that system and break it even more. <laughs> and, and that's what the right. terrifying part of it is. And, right. and I think that's a huge part of the reason why it is such a hesitant thing to change the system because nobody knows. Everybody's got their opinion. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people in positions of authority that – that try to figure out the way to best do this. But, and I bet you if you lined up 10 of them, they'd all have different opinions on how the best way to do it is. And right. I mean, what are they going to do? They just got to pick one of the ways and go with it. And it either breaks it more or fixes it. Right. So it's, it's a, it's one of those problems that exists in the world. That's nearly impossible <laughs> to fix probably. Right. And, right. And look at, look at, I don't know if you've seen recently, um, that uh, I guess in the beginning of 23, that Illinois is removing all cash bails for crimes up to and including like second degree murder. 
Like, listen, I'm from the street. Like I was raised around crime. That's ridiculous. Like, I mean, like that's ridiculous, man. And, you know, I think that's one of those instances where like, I feel like they just gave up. Like, I don't even like, that's not even trying to work on reform. Like you're just, okay. Yeah. You get picked up for second degree murder. We're just going to go ahead and not, not have a hearing for bail or anything. We're just going to put you back out on the street. Like <laughs> it seems a little bit risky for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seems like they're doing a lot of that in a lot of places, actually, probably not just Illinois. Cause no, for that, sure. You know, it's like a huge problem in New York and LA and all over the country. Well, every true liberal city, I mean, uh, if we're being honest, you yeah. know, and, and that's not a bash against anybody cause I'm, I'm far from political, but, um, you know, it, it, the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, would I have liked a shot to be out on bail for, you know, such and such crime, whatever it is. Sure. But would it have been best for me? Probably not. No. Like just, just, just being honest. Yeah. No, and you wouldn't have learned anything from it. Yeah. You know, and, I would have probably caught another case while I was out on bail. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, and that's, that's just the way it goes. And in all honesty, based on just this conversation, I've kind of come to the conclusion that one of the things that could really remedy this, it, it wouldn't by any means fix this situation, but would be a step is like you said, somebody goes to prison for three years. They're probably not really going to get reformed in those three years. So they're probably just going to go back out and continue doing whatever they were doing. It's more of a waiting period for them to get back to their old life and not fix their life. So mm -hmm. what if we looked at that initial crime has a more severe punishment? So these people that are going for three years now go for six, seven years. And that gives them mm -hmm. the time to realize the mistakes they've made. And hopefully mm -hmm. by the time they get out, they're more likely to not reoffend. Right. Yeah. Do you think there's I mean, validity to that or, or would you just flat out disagree with that? Well, I mean... <sighs> It'd be hard to, or to such a wide range, the amount of time you can get for any particular crime. So I think that's like, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Um, I think the reality, it, the more and more we discuss this and just talk about it and you try to bring some rationalization to, to all sides is that it's just, it's human error, man. It's, it's human error at its finest because brighter minds have probably had these conversations numerous times. Right. And, and even like the concept of, you know, cause what ran through my head was, yeah, well, what if somebody gets charged for a crime? And you're not really given a sentence. You're just basically put in prison until you do program and work to reform yourself and show that you can readjust to society and lead a different life. In theory, that sounds like a great idea. And you would almost back that proponent, right? I would back it. But yeah. at the same time, the human error comes into play. And now you have, you know, whomever it is at the decision-making end to decide whether you are or are not reformed. And that's another argument in itself because, you know, now it's like I have to trust that this counselor or this parole hearing officer or whomever it is has to like me just enough and believe in me just enough to give me a, a chance to get back out. Because who's to say there's not a bunch of people that just want criminals in prison in general. So that's the problem. It's, it's human error, man. You can never really be confident in decisions that are made to help or hurt people because 
there's always going to be, you know, one that goes one way and one that goes the other way. So it's a hodgepodge of opinions and you just have to hope that your case falls on the side of somebody that wants to give you a chance. And, and my, my, my counter argument would be to that is, is that in my opinion, there's no way, there's no reason why they can't remove that human element from this process <clears throat> using some sort of technology that, you know, basically I don't know. You take an assessment, and after you take the assessment, it basically says this cut this person right. has an eighty percent chance that they're reformed, or and as long as they score above this point, they're good to but go. But who programs the technology? No questions asked. Let them out. And we know, yes, unfortunately, twenty percent of these people statistically are going to reviolate. But but it's a fair and it's a fair way on both sides to say, you know. This right. is the right move to make. And yeah, my, 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 uh, I guess in my counter counter would be who programs the software. <laughs> a human. There's a human element. There's always a human element, man. Yes. And, and is, is pure as you would hope people have pure hearts. It just, it's, you know what, man, it's just it, the world we live in. I just feel like it's so divided in, in every sense of the word, man. I mean, you know, yeah, you could and, be a, you could be a, you could be at a crosswalk with somebody and and they press the button and and you could be one of the guys that wants to press it again and they could be the guy that doesn't want to press it again and now you're at odds. You know, it's just it's there's so many things in the world that divide us. Changing and helping people, unfortunately, should be the one that brings us together. And unfortunately, it's like the wedge gets deeper and bigger every time. Yeah, I won't so, disagree with that, but I do think that an approach like that it takes out a lot of the human element. And at least in that situation, you as a person cannot blame anybody else for the outcome. Right. You know what I mean? I like if you didn't score high enough, well, you didn't score high enough. It's not, it's not, I mean, you can blame the software development company, but, but I mean, right. it's not going to get, but it, it's a lot different when you're looking across the room and you see a person and you can tell that person just doesn't like you. Oh, for you sure. Know, you know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, it's very similar to being in a job interview. And it's like you walk into the job interview and you can immediately tell that the HR rep doesn't like you. Well, well, mm. I mean, is that really? I know that feeling well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's just kind of a, it's yeah. a solution. There is no good solution. And. Right. And unfortunately, like, I think it's important that I would like to th see people think more about these things. Yeah. Because, you know, this is really an underlying problem. And it's the same thing. Like, like, I'm not very political either. And I see this all the time with people having conflicts over politics, where it's like, right. like, take a step back and look at the way the other person's seeing it. And you'll see right. that they're not necessarily wrong. They're just, they see it in a different way than you. And, right. and it's a shame that that's the way our brains work, but it is how our brains work. So Right. And I mean, it's what makes us unique. And, and like you said, man, finding a solution is a needle in a haystack. I think the the main thing is what we did here today, man, just create a conversation, you yeah. know, and uh, allowing it, allowing it to find its own place in history. And, you know, who knows, man, somebody might listen to this and be like, these guys 
really knew what they were talking about. Yeah, man. <laughs> Just so you know, if somebody comes and knocking and wants us to get involved in politics, that's all you. I'm not. I'm not touching that. Mm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that guy. <laughs> so, all right. Well, do you got anything yep. else you want to discuss with this one? Or no, I feel like this is good. We pulled it over an hour. I didn't think it was going to go that long. <laughs> so, so it was a good one, though. Yeah. So, all right, then we will wrap this episode up as always. And please, if you do have comments about this episode, because I know it was probably very controversial, uh, reach out to us at normalizedcrime at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Heck, maybe we'll even have you come on the show and you can tell us what you think. And otherwise, we will be back in a week with another episode. Thanks again for tuning in. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to Normalized Crime. Stay tuned for the next episode.